This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 28, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Alexa Billow talks with Maria Zuber about what gravity measurements can tell us about a gargantuan crater on the moon. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First, we have a story on dining on rodents. Back in the day, the Neolithic day, residents of the Orkney Archipelago, off the northern tip of today's Scotland, they ate pretty well. Right, Dave? What were they eating? Venison, mm. oysters, yeah. crab, mussels, cod. Too much seafood for me. And but, voles. Yeah, I was going to say, there's some <laughs> mammals in the mix. Voles. Voles. Voles, right. Voles are a small sort of mouse-like rodent. Right. And so what's the evidence that people back... How long ago was this? This is about, well, this village that the, the researchers looked at was about 5,400 years old. And what the team found was that they found these adult skeletons of voles in trenches. And what was really interesting is that burn patterns on the bodies closely resembled those that you would get if you were roasting these rodents over a spit. So I'm not too familiar with voles, but they don't dig or burrow or show up in these spots? No, they, they don't. And the fact that it's mainly adults the team was finding suggests that the villagers were looking for sort of the largest animals they could find. Not a whole lot of meat on these guys anyway, so you want the biggest ones you can get. Right. And this isn't the first I've heard of humans eating rodents. I mean, people eat guinea pigs even today down in Peru. That's right. What's interesting about this find is this is the first evidence for rodent eating in Europe. And as you said, Sarah, people eat rodents elsewhere in the world. What was interesting is when the researchers compared the burn marks on these rodents with what we know about other cultures that eat rodents, they were very similar, which is suggests more evidence that, they, that these bulls were actually being eaten in this village. Now we have a story on more clues for the ninth planet. Back in the beginning of 2016, news of a new ninth planet rocked the astronomical community. 
Sorry, Pluto. <laughs> uh, according to the models released at that time, the planet is 10 times as big as the Earth, but despite its massive size, it has an incredibly long orbit. It takes 15,000 years to circle the sun. So we haven't seen it. There is evidence for its existence that's starting to accumulate. What, what's the new news about Planet Nine, Dave? Well, right. And, and just to be clear, we actually don't know if there is actually is a Planet Nine. Right. We just sort of suspect that there might be. And part of the reason we suspect there might be is the study you allude to, Sarah. And one of the reasons, one of the pieces of evidence the researchers gave is that there is this cluster of six icy bodies beyond Neptune. They're known as trans-Neptunian objects. And they're in this sort of weird clustered orbit that would be explained very well if there was this massive planet out there that was influencing their orbit and causing them to cluster. The new study looks at a, a couple more of these objects and finds again that their strange orbit can really only be explained if there is this planet nine out there. Right. And so these orbits are very unusual. They're outside the elliptic, so they're not in that nice flat disk that most of the planets that we know about circle the sun in. But there's also one that's backwards, that's orbit is backwards. What is the proposed explanation for that? <laughs> this is my favorite. This is a explanation known as the COSI mechanism, which sounds a bit like a Star Trek maneuver. Basically, what this theory proposes is that a massive object can induce a gravitational ratcheting effect that can slowly change the inclination of a smaller object, for example, one of these trans-Neptunian objects, and actually can cause its orbit to flip upside down, which is kind of what we're seeing here. This is all well and good, but this is modeling. This is based on a lot of math. What do people who don't believe in Planet Nine say about these new objects and, and these theories? Well, one of the things they, they say is that a lot of these objects we're looking at that we're seeing have these really weird orbits or really sort of weirdly clustered together. We're looking at them because they're very easy to look at because they're in a very particular spot of the sky that's very easy. And what these uh, sort of naysayers say is if we start looking at a broader swath of the sky, we're going to realize that what we think is significant here is actually very random. And there's a lot more randomness and a lot more weirdness out there than we think there is. And when you take all that into account, you don't need a Planet Nine to explain any of this stuff. Well, the only way this debate is really going to be settled is by actually spotting Planet Nine with a telescope. How close are we on that? Well, as you can imagine, there is a race to spot Planet Nine. There's a lot of teams out there. They think they know where it is. They think it's somewhere in the direction of the constellation Orion. So a lot of groups are training telescopes out there, obviously. To discover the ninth planet in the solar system would be a super huge deal. So there were teams, they were starting to collaborate at first, but now they've stopped collaborating because everybody really wants to be first. And one group even says that potentially by the end of next year, we may have spotted this planet. Lastly, we have a story on the sad decline of hookworm infections. Okay, well, not exactly sad. Hookworm infections do not feel good. Nausea, anemia, cramping, and worse can follow when these roundworms take up residence in the gut. But humans and hookworms have coexisted for a very long time. Right. Well, hookworms are, first of all, one of the most ancient life forms we know about. They also been with us for at least 3,500 years. There's uh, hieroglyphics that seem to discuss hookworms that are seen on uh, ancient Egyptian papyrus. Hippocrates may have even described people being infected with them. But ever since about the early 1900s, when there were efforts to eradicate them, we've really sort of done away with, at least in the modern world, hookworms in our lives. 
Now that hookworms have been eliminated from many parts of the world, researchers then started to see a rise in certain conditions and wondered if there could be a link. What conditions? Well, we saw an uptick in conditions like asthma, celiac disease, Crohn's disease, a lot of autoimmune disorders. And I have a feeling that no one actually wants to be infected with a hookworm. <laughs> and so there has to be some other way of investigating this. What did they do? Well, the, yeah, the question is, can we extract whatever it is if there is something that hookworms are maybe secreting or contain and just use that secretion, maybe turn it into a drug rather than just like saying like, hey, drink a glass of hookworms to cure your asthma. And that's what the researchers did in this study. What they found is that when they had hookworms swim in a bit of a solution, which they called a hookworm soup, and they actually injected that soup into mice that had like an asthma-like condition, their asthma really cleared up. When they refined that a bit and tried to figure out well, what is it exactly in this soup that's causing this sort of cure effect, they found a protein that was very prevalent, a protein called anti-inflammatory protein 2 or AIP2. And when they isolated just this one protein, they found that just injecting that one protein had a very similar effect on reversing symptoms of asthma in mice. So that's all in mice, but has there been any step towards testing this out in people? Well, the blood of people, the researchers found that when they added AIP2 blood samples from people, it suppressed the proliferation of T cells. And T cells are these immune cells which can sort of play a role in some of these autoimmune disorders. So that's a small clue, at least, that this particular protein from hookworms might be a potential treatment for some of these conditions. Before we get to what else is on the site this week, Dave, you have a quiz question for me? That's right. A recent study from Papua New Guinea has found that what tendency is not shared by all human cultures? Do you want me to just make something up, or are you going to give me a list of options? Okay. Is it excitement about the latest Apple release, <laughs> using the same facial expressions, telling ghost stories, or fear of clowns? I have seen a face all over our website. It's got to be facial expressions. I, I didn't read the story, though. That's right. It's facial expressions. When you're smiling, it may feel like the whole world is smiling with <laughs> you, but a new study suggests that some facial expressions may not be so universal. In fact, several expressions commonly understood in the West, including one for fear, have very different meanings. So the findings may call into question some widely held tenets of emotional theory, and they may undercut some emerging technologies such as robots and artificial intelligence programs tasked with reading people's emotions. Thanks, Dave. If you could see my face right now, I think you guys would know what I was feeling. So that's the quiz. Uh, people can find that on the site. What else can they find on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about birds that stay in flight for 10 months at a time. Also a story about why trying to kill mosquitoes with guppies is a bad idea. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how a deadly virus hopped a flight from Seoul to Paris. Also, the latest on Europe's Mars lander, which crashed into the Red Planet earlier this week. What does that mean for the mission, and what can the mission still accomplish? Be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Graham is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Now we have intern Alexa Billow talking with MIT's Maria Zuber on the GRAIL mission and what we can learn about the moon from studying its craters. The surface of the moon is pretty well known at this point. We've walked on it after all, but everything beneath that remains a mystery. 
NASA's GRAIL spacecraft makes incredibly precise measurements of the moon's gravity, which this week's guest used to create a three-dimensional map of an impact crater called Oriental Basin. Maria Zuber is here to talk about the results of that analysis. Maria, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. NASA's GRAIL mission measures the moon's gravity field, and you use that information to look beneath the surface of the moon. Can you walk us through how that works? Sure. So we measure the moon's gravitational field, and that was done by two spacecraft that were orbiting the moon in tandem and sending radio signals between the two of them. And the Doppler shift in those radio signals gives us a uh, velocity and the change in velocity with time is acceleration and gravity has units of acceleration. So that's how we measure gravity. But then to see inside the moon, we have to take into account the gravitational attraction of the surface topography. So we subtract that out and then what's left in the gravitational signal is the structure of the moon's interior, the distribution of mass anomalies. So what happens when an asteroid strikes a rocky body like Earth or like the moon? How does studying the structure of craters help us reconstruct what happens there? So Oriental is a very special basin. It's the youngest large impact basin on the moon. And these large basins that we're trying to study are special because they were formed by large asteroids that were left over from when the Earth and Moon form. When a large asteroid hits a planet, it just transfers a huge amount of energy into the planetary body. And some of that goes into digging a big hole, some of it goes into throwing material out, some of it goes into melting, some into vaporization, some into huge seismic shocks, and some of it can even go into reorienting the planet on its axis if it's a big enough impact. So the, the effects of having all that energy dumped into a planet are extremely catastrophic. How does studying a crater, looking at a crater, tell us what happened? It's a little bit of a complicated process, but it shows us how much material from the upper part of the planet was removed. The moon, like the Earth, has a crust and a mantle, and beneath the impact basin, the crust has been removed. Material has also flown inward from the collapse of the cavity, and we see that by looking at the distribution of faults on the moon. Then material melts and forms other material with a composition that is a mixture of what the crust and the mantle is, and we can also map out the distribution of those materials as well. So by putting all of these observations together and then combining the gravity data with information from other sensors, such as geochemical sensors, one can reconstruct basically the energetics and what happened. How much of the energy that went in went into melting, how much of it went into moving material around, how much of it went into throwing material out. So that's the way we essentially reconstruct the energy budget of the impact. So presumably there are impact craters closer than the ones on the moon. What makes this particular moon crater a really good candidate for study? Well, we actually planned the GRAIL mission so that it would be able to study this particular impact basin in detail because it is so special. First of all, it's large. It's 930 kilometers across. It's larger than any impact basin on the Earth, and it's the youngest. It has been less disrupted 
by other things that have happened subsequent to its formation than any other large impact basin on the moon. And it's often viewed as the type example of a large impact basin on a planetary body because it's so well-preserved. So it's the youngest, best, biggest, really the ideal crater. It's perfect. So the crater is made up of several concentric rings. There's rings within rings within rings. Why does that happen? The reason that it happens is so material gets thrown up and material gets moved outward to form a big cavity. And then because of the shock disruption of the target, the crust and the mantle of the moon lose their strength, so they become strengthless. And this cavity just collapses upon itself, and the material flows inward. And what these rings represent are faults that form as this cavity is collapsing. So it's telling us about the process that actually, subsequent to the impact, the process that produces the final configuration of the basin. And we've been able to map these faults, and it appears that they actually go and penetrate through the crust and into the mantle. What are the consequences of these major impacts going so deep and rearranging bits of the moon's crust? What happens is that heat gets basically dumped very deep into the moon, which subsequently causes volcanism, which is a process that rearranges a planetary surface. The other thing that happens is that by excavating so deep, all of this material gets redistributed on the lunar crust. And so we see variations in the thickness of the crust all over the moon. And by studying these impacts, we gain a better understanding of how much these variations in crustal thickness are due to material getting redistributed by impacts versus heterogeneous melting when the crust of the moon was forming in the first place. It basically allows us to understand how much of the variability of the, the crust of the moon is due to impacts versus temperature differences and differences in melting. Do we see anything like that on Earth? So the largest impact basin that is preserved on the Earth is Chicxulub, which is about a factor of four to five smaller than Oriental. But if you look up and see those big basins on the moon and how heavily impacted the moon was, Earth used to look like this. But on Earth, we have subduction of oceanic crust. We have erosion of material on the continents by both water and wind. And so on the Earth, these largest old basins aren't preserved. So if we're trying to study the earliest evolution of the Earth, we can actually do a better job of understanding the environmental conditions and the extreme variations in the environment by studying these old basins on the moon, because they're not preserved on Earth anymore. Maria, thank you so much for your time today. Well, you're welcome. I was happy to be here and uh, happy to talk about this exciting work. Maria Zuber and colleagues present a gravity map of the moon's Oriental impact crater in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. 
On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.